Well, God speaks through his word, and so let's now turn there. If you will, please turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 21. Joshua 21, if you need a Bible, there should be some in the chairs in front of you. We're on page 195 in those Bibles. And instead of the whole chapter, we're just going to look at the end in verses 43 through 45. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Lord. Holy Spirit wrote it. And so he speaks through his word. And this is God's word to us this morning. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had swore to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for Yahweh had given them all their enemies into their hands. Not one word. Of all the good promises that Yahweh made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your unfailing promises, your good and precious promises. So Lord, now as we study them, would you teach us, would you speak to us and change us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In many ways, up until this point in the scriptures, from the very beginning, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all the way up to the first 20 chapters, 21 chapters of Joshua, they've all been building up to this moment. Uh, These verses, these words that we just read, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And it all centers around this idea of kingdom theology, God building his kingdom, God's people in God's place under God's rule. This is the way Moses actually proclaimed it to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is what the Lord is doing with his people. Yahweh is their God. They are his people, and now they are in his place, the promised land, just as he had promised. And though it had taken hundreds of years to see God's promise fulfilled, though they had to be delivered from Egypt, though there was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, though there was many years of holy war in the promised land, God's promise was now coming to fruition. And so here in these verses, verses 43 through 45, we have what Dr. Dale Ralph Davis calls the the theological heart of the book of Joshua. It's the jugular vein of the entire storyline of the book of Joshua. So if you want to know what is the book of Joshua about, it's actually not about Joshua. 
Yes, he's a key figure there, but it's about the Lord. And these verses serve as the the thesis statement, if you will, for the, the whole book. And these verses actually give us an outline for what we're going to look at here in this truth. It is the thesis statement, verses 43 through 45, for the whole redemptive historical narrative of the book of Joshua. But more importantly, these verses actually serve as doxology. They actually serve for us as a a way to, to meditate and reflect and give praise to our great God for who he is and what he has done. And it can all be summarized in this one verse. Look there in verse 45. This heartbeat of the truth. Not one promise failed. Not one promise that the Lord made to his people failed. And we're going to see here in just a little bit how these promises were fulfilled. And so because the Lord keeps his promises, there's only one thing left to do. There's only one thing left to do when we see God has done what he said he would do when he fulfills his promises, and that is to give all praise to God who reigns above. And so because the Lord keeps his promises, that's what we must do. We must give praise to God. That's the point of Joshua. That's indeed the whole point of the Bible. That is indeed what we are here for. All praise belongs to God for his supreme glory. So these verses, they actually serve a very similar, in a very similar way that uh, Paul expresses in the end, of the, uh, the, uh, the end of chapter 11 in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is an expression of the full gospel that, the, that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And in these first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is explaining in great detail the, the wonderful and amazing grace of God through the gospel. And once Paul gets finished proclaiming the, the wonderful doctrines of grace and all that God has been doing in his people, he has nothing left to do but to give praise and glory to God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, for from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And that is, in a sense, what we have here in Joshua. The book of Joshua, the writer here, is giving uh, this, this all praise to God, this magnificent and wonderful and epic theology about who God is and what he has done in the life of his people. He's saying it's not just about knowing stuff. It's not just about knowing facts about God, but it's about who he is and what he has done. And this wonderful theology, this wonderful truths that we see here in God's word we must respond to it and that's why we say that theology should lead to doxology what we know about God and who he is and what he has done is to lead us to praise him for who he is and what he has done and so here in verses 43 through 45 we have a doxology praise to God And we give praise to God because these good and precious promises of Yahweh God are fulfilled. And we'll see that they are fulfilled by what the Lord gave to his people Israel. That's that's the thesis here. That's the theme that we see play its way out here in these verses. What Yahweh God gave to them is outlined in these verses. And they show us and they teach us how to praise God 
for how he kept his promises. So we'll look at three areas here. God gave them the land. Secondly, God gave them rest. Thirdly, God gave them victory. And each of these promises that God fulfilled by what he gave to them shows us its future fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we will look at that as we study God's word. Look first with me there in verse 43. We see that God gave his people the land. The book of Joshua, as you may recall, is all about uh, God's people being bound for the promised land and how Israel was to possess it and subdue it because this was Yahweh, their God's calling on them. He called them, he promised them that he would give them a land and he called them to go and to subdue it. And we saw this promise is actually goes way back to Genesis chapter 13 that we read earlier in the service when God calls a wandering Aramean named Abram and he makes a very great promise to him that he will make him into a great nation so numerous that not even, it cannot even be counted, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in this great promise, it includes giving him and his people a land. He tells Abraham to go and to walk this land. He is going to make him a great nation in this land. But much has happened between God making this promise to Abraham all the way up into Joshua's day. Perhaps 600 or 700 years had passed before this promise was fulfilled. 600 or 700 years, that's a long time. Oftentimes we can look at that length of time and think that God must not be faithful. He must not be true because it's taking so long. But the Lord's timing is not our timing, is it? His ways are not our ways. This is the way God often works. His work in our lives And in building his church, it takes time, maybe even lifetimes. But now we read here in verse 43, Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers. Promise was made and the promise kept. But the land that Yahweh God gave to Israel, it does foreshadow for us today, the New Testament church. This new heavens and this new earth that is promised to us that we will one day possess. Our ultimate promised land. And the new heavens and the new earth that believers will inherit, it first, though, points us to Christ. Because the new heavens and the new earth are about belonging to and being with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And that promise is really an already now, it's already happening now, but it's not fully complete yet until Christ's return. And so Paul tells us in his letters and over and over, our, our dwelling right now, our promised land, our place to belong, it's in Christ. In Christ. That is, that is our home. That is where we are safe and secure. That is where our belonging is. It is in Christ. America is not our promised land. Israel is not our promised land. Our promised land, our promised dwelling, our promised security and safety is in Christ. That is our home. That is our resting place. 
That is our identity. That is what God has promised. We are in Christ. This is extremely critical to understand in our day and age when there's so much confusion about our identity. We're being bombarded. We're being told over and over and over that our identity must be found in our sexuality or our identity must be found in our politics or our identity must be in our careers. But for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not so. Our identity is first and foremost in Christ. All of God's people, all of mankind is made in his image. But for those who hope in Christ, that is our dwelling. We are in Christ. And so God's promise to his church has ultimately been fulfilled by our belonging to Christ. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is God's promise to Israel, to give them the land, and his promise to us to give us our position in Christ. Secondly, we read in verse 44 that God gave them rest. The goal of the book of Joshua has been to give strength and courage to God's people, that he will bring them into a place where he will be their God and they will be his people, and they will find peace under the care of their merciful and faithful God in the place that he is giving them to dwell. Yes, there will still be some small skirmishes and small battles, small places that still need to be conquered, but the major military operations are over at this point in Joshua. Israel now has possession of the promised land, and it wouldn't be more beautiful, more awesome, more glorious for an an Israelite during Joshua's day. Because the current generation, the ones who now got to actually receive their deeds of the land that they would get, all they had known up to this point is wandering in the wilderness and holy war and fighting. They did not know rest. And now they finally have it. They can now settle and rest in the promised land. And of course, this too points us to the everlasting rest that we have in Jesus Christ. But let's face it, right now, today, the current world and current situation that we find ourselves in, we can often find ourselves weary, weary from sickness, weary from sorrow, weary from pain, weary from sin. Weary from being bombarded by worldliness over and over and over. Weary from Satan firing his flaming arrows at us constantly. It can be discouraging and even exhausting to live in this world at times. But for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's hope and there's rest. There's hope and rest that Jesus promised to us when he says, come to me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest in Christ. And for the church, there's that final and everlasting rest that is promised to us. That final and everlasting resting place called the new heavens and the new earth. 
this place where we will be able to breathe the greatest sigh of relief that will ever be breathed. Listen to the way that the Apostle John describes it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I can't wait. Can you? We will experience an even greater relief than Israel did when they settled the promised land, when we one day enter the ultimate promised land, the ultimate rest. But thirdly, we see God's promise fulfilled here in giving them victory. God gave them victory in verse 44, we read. The only way that Israel would experience true rest is if war had ceased. More importantly, only by the decisive defeat of their enemies would Israel have victory. And that is just what God did. That is just what he promised. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. And this was not just figuratively. This was not just metaphorically. God's people actually saw him fighting for them. God fights for his people. He gives them victory because he literally went into battle with hailstones and boulders crushing God's enemies before them. He fought for them. And how sweet that victory was for their people. How encouraging it must have been for Israel because their king, their God, he he fought alongside them. He conquered with them. And of course, as we look to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, And the final victory that is to come when Christ comes again with his mighty angels to destroy his enemies and usher in the peace of the elect. This too gives us strength and courage and joy in the victory that Christ has secured for us. Because he went to battle for us. He conquered sin and death and defeated the principalities by his death. On the cross. But one day this victory will be ultimate and complete. It will be consummated. And again in Revelation 19, we see once again that our king will ride out and fight with us and for us once again when he prophesies. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whew. We will ride out with the Lord. And we will see that ultimate victory one day in the new heavens, in the new earth. This is the victory that is promised for us. So for Israel, a land rest, victory. These are the promises made and the promises kept by Yahweh God to his people. But how did God's people know that he would keep his promises? What proof was there after hundreds of years? What proof was there that Israel, the Old Testament church, And what proof is there for us, the New Testament church, that God would do what he promised? How could we know? How could we be assured? Well, for the Old Testament saints, their understanding that God would keep his good and precious promises go all the way back to his promise to Abraham. I know our adults have been studying Genesis for many weeks now, and you've looked at this. Remember this promise that was made to Abraham and to, be, to make him into a great nation and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. But Abraham, he doubted. He wasn't sure. That was a big promise God gave to him to make him into a nation because he didn't even have children yet. He was 100 years old. And so Abraham asked Yahweh God, How can I know that you will do what you promise and give me and my people a land to possess? How could he know? How could he be sure that God would do what he promised? And in Genesis 15, we have one of the most beautiful and explicit displays of the gospel that we can find almost anywhere in the scriptures, but surely in the Old Testament. How would God make good on his promise? How could Abraham be sure? You may recall in this episode in Genesis 15, where Yahweh God told Abraham to bring animals to him for sacrifice. And these animals were brought before the Lord and they were cut in half. And they were laid in pieces out before them. This covenantal act was a demonstration of what scholars call a suzerain vassal treaty. And in a suzerain vassal treaty, you have a suzerain who would be a king, a lord, or a master, where he enters into agreement with vassals, with those who are in subject to him. And so this treaty would be made to come to an agreement. And in this treaty, we see that the animals will be cut in half, and each party would have to walk through the parts. This was like the Old Testament way of like a handshake or signing, you know, a title. And by symbolizing walking through these parts, 
each party was saying, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, then let it be done to me as to these animals. And so Yahweh God initiates this covenant ceremony with Abram, this suzerain vassal treaty. But then something unexpected happens, something really beyond believability. Yahweh God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And then we read where Yahweh God himself passes through the parts of the slain animals, symbolized by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And Abraham does not pass through the pieces. What does this mean? It means the Lord keeps his promises. And here he swears by himself that he will do exactly as he said he would do. He would fulfill his promise. And if he doesn't, he remarkably says that he would submit himself to the stipulations of the covenant for not doing what he said he would do. Yahweh took on all the obligations of the covenant himself. How crazy it sounds that God would insinuate that he would be struck down if he did not keep his promise. Now fast forward thousands of years later to another promise that was made. A covenant of redemption between the father and the son. And sin is still a great problem. The world is ruled by darkness and evil. And there is a church that must be rescued, that must be saved from their sin. And this time, instead of Yahweh God symbolically passing through the pieces, God's own son is nailed to a cross, crucified, sacrificed, killed to atone for sin. Jesus was struck down so that we would not have to be. The Lord keeps his promises. He sent his one and only son into the world to die, to rise again, so that we might have everlasting life. And this is why we can agree with what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians about God's promises. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Not one word, not one jot or tittle of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Not one word of all the promises that God has made to those who believe in Christ Jesus, who repent and believe, have failed. They have all been yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So what more could we say? And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for from him and to him and through him are all things to him be glory forever and ever amen let's pray oh lord we see that you have set your love upon your people from long long ago and your love is an everlasting love your love is a majestic love your love is is greater is higher is wider is deeper than anything we could ever know on this earth it's a divine love it's a, a choosing love it's a great love with which you have fulfilled all your promises by sending your one and only son to die for us. Lord, in response to all that you have done and all that you will do, fill our hearts, fill our minds, fill our lives with praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.